obviously you're free to, to have your kids join us there or, or stay with you in your seats, whichever you would like. For the rest of us, we're going to be taking a look at a passage and maybe a little different one than you expected to find as you came to church this morning. We're going to be looking at, at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the reason is because the, the glory of this Easter morning, the glory of the resurrection of Jesus, it can only really be found once we see a number of promises that have been made to God's people. And so today we're going to read of, of one of these most paradigm-shifting turns in the history of what God has done in the world, and it finds us right where we've been the last several months in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. Now when the king, that's King David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved, and with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, with him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, we gathered this morning because we need a new vision of life. We need a better promise and we need a better hope than the ones that we so often turn to. And so, God, I pray that as we come to this text a text that can feel so strange and so distant from us, 
God, I pray that you, by your spirit, would open our eyes and our hearts. Lord, that you would allow us to hear the good news. The good news that teaches us of who Jesus is and the work that he has done for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a, a few years ago, I had a, uh, a five-year-old daughter who's now grown up a little bit. Well, I had a five-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son and a six-month-old-ish uh, little boy as well. But we, we took one of our, what I would kind of consider our first family vacation. Well, my wife Whitney's sister was living in San Diego at the time. And, uh, and so we, we flew out there to, to spend a, a week with family slash, you know, get to enjoy some of the, the benefits of Southern California, right? And I remember it so distinctly because my, my daughter, as she was five years old, is, is finally able to, to really get it, right? She gets the, the specialness of being able to be with her, her big cousins, right, who are... Uh, nearing the teenage years. She, she got to be uh, in this beautiful place where, where Aunt JJ had a, had a pool in her complex, right? And that California weather was, was perfect for her to, to settle in. And so day in and day out, she was having the best time. But I had cooked up a little something up my sleeves, you know, because when you go visit family, it's, it's part vacation, but it's also part like, you know, taking your cousins to gymnastics practice and, you know, staying home and, and eating meals, you know, once Uncle Ben came home from work, you know, the, the kinds of things that are not quite so exciting. And so I cooked up this surprise to, to, to disrupt um, this vacation and get a little extra something in there. Right, and so I had planned the what I thought for months. I've been planning this special daddy-daughter day. Right, uh, we would occasionally go on daddy-daughter dates, and so I, I came up with the the plan. Right, I took into account her age and and the costs and the time, and and we set out this perfect day, perfectly oriented around my daughter, Ellie, and I thought I'll even do better. I'll surprise her. Right. I'll surprise her and not tell her about this, this perfect day that I have planned for the best for the two of us. And so uh, the, the night before we were going to leave, and we were going to get up early the next morning and, and leave from, uh, from our family's house and, and go on an excursion. And I, I pulled her aside before I went to sleep. She went to sleep, and I said, Ellie, guess what? Tomorrow is going to be the best daddy-daughter day ever. And she looked at me, and she said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I'm not going to tell you it's a surprise, but I, it is, I'm telling you, it is going to be the best day ever. She looked at me, and she said, it's okay, I'm good. I said, well, Ellie, don't you want to come with me? Don't you want to go on this, see what I have planned for us? And she goes, well, we came here to visit JJ, so I'll just stay here instead. And we come to this text, and we come to this moment, and, and the Israelites are feeling pretty settled in. 
they're feeling pretty good. They, they have been a, a people for hundreds of years. Their national identity was built around these promises that God had given uh, their father Abraham. That they would live in a land, a land that was their own. That they would become a, a nation, that, that they would have a, a, a people group, that this one little family would, expi- would, would fill and bless, that these people group would, would carry a name, a name that would be known throughout the nations as the place where God dwells, a place where the nations could see the goodness of God. And so we're coming into the text through hundreds of years of slavery and wandering and turmoil and war. And finally, we have found the people of Israel in their land. In their land with a king, a good king. A king whose name, King David's name, was known far and wide for his wisdom and for his justice and for his uh, protection of his people. The people had a name, they had a land, they had a nation, a kingdom that was their very own, and they were settled in, and they were ready to go. And yet, in this text, God does something completely unexpected. These people who were settled into to the role that religion played into their lives, who had fulfilled all the promises made to their ancestors, God throws a little monkey wrench. He comes to him on that sunny San Diego evening and says, I have a surprise for you. I have a new thing. So we're going to look this morning at what I'm going to call two bombshells, two things that God drops in on the life of the people of Israel that change everything. They change everything about who they think they are and who they think they're, where they think they're going. And I think if we read along carefully, we can be disrupted and encouraged and excited right there with them. So first, we're going to take a look at, at this first bombshell, and, I'm, and it's going to say this. God comes to this people, these people who had, had finally arrived at a good and perfect place, and he says, this good life that you're experiencing is not good enough. This good life that you're experiencing is not good luck good enough you can see that they have uh, settled in by the way that that David and and Nathan's dialogue that they have David comes up with this plan and he says we have a kingdom we have a name we have a place we have all of these things but yet there's one thing missing there's one thing that we need to set the concrete if you would to to set the house of God up because God's uh, the, the temple where they would worship or the gathering place where they would worship was, was a tent that had traveled with them over hundreds of miles. And David says there's one thing to this good life that we're missing, and that is a temple. And we're finally in the place, and we finally have the means, and we finally are ready to build it. And it's hard to see why not. Right? Who could ask for anything more? And, and the, non, the easiness of the decision, right? the obviousness that this was the place to stay and to dwell was uh, evident by Nathan's response. The prophet Nathan who says, absolutely, whatever David is in your heart to do, do it because God has finally put us in the place where we are supposed to be and there's no need for anything new. 
But God surprises them. God surprises them because he says, I, I don't need a house. I'm not ready for a house. I'm not ready to settle in and, and to stabilize. It's not time yet to build a temple. In essence, God was saying, you think you've arrived. You come to the place at the end. But let me tell you, your good life isn't good enough. There's still more to come. Namely, uh, 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 an expansion, an explosion, a heightening of these promises that God made because that land that they had could be taken away. And in fact, it would be. The name that they had made for themselves could be tarnished and drugged through the mud, and in fact, it would be. Right? The, the nation that they had become could be scattered to the four winds, and in fact, they would be. Death, distance, and alienation from God, and estrangement because of their sins could destroy them, could upset them, could throw off what God had given them. And so you see, God takes these promises and he says, I've already established you, I've already given you rest, but that is not enough. Right? He says to David, when you lie down, because David, by the way, you're still going to die. Death is still at work in this world. And so God prom counteracts that death with a promise of forever. You can see it over and over and over again in this text. God says forever, forever, forever will your kingdom last. The distance between uh, a God who, who lived in the heavens and the man who lived on the earth, God says, it's not just through this Ark of the Covenant that's hidden in a tent, but there will come a, a king, uh, there will come one who comes after you, and he shall be to me a son, and I will be to him a father. You can see in verse 14. And what that means is, as we can see in verse 14 and 15, is that that estrangement, that the, the sin and the rebellion of God's people wouldn't be enough to stop his steadfast love. That he would find a way to draw near, that he would find a way to forgive. God surprises them and he says, you, want, you think you've arrived, you think because you, you don't have enemies on every side, you think because you have a name and a land, you think good, your good life is good enough, but I'm telling you that it's not. Because I want you to have permanence. I want you to take that goodness and I want you to, to multiply it to the nth degree. I want you to take uh, the vision of the good life that you have now and I want you to realize that we are going to explode it throughout time and space that this kingdom would be secure, that rest from the violent men will last forever. Well, forever is a long time. Forever is, is, is one of those words that kind of makes us feel uncomfortable, especially in our day. So we have the people who have settled in, and, and religion has served its purpose. Religion has got them to the place where they feel confident and secure, but God surprises them by telling them that their vision for life is not enough, that there is more. But the third thing, that the third movement we, we have as we read this text is we're not sure if we should trust him. 
We're not sure that this, this forever business, that this uh, father-son relationship business, that this forgiveness of sins business is really better than where we're at. God says, I have a special daddy-daughter day for us, a special daddy-daughter relationship for us, but we're not so sure. See, the first things are easy, the, the, a good name and a land and security, right? Look at the way we, uh, you purchase a house, right? And you'll pay thousands of dollars more to get in the right neighborhood. The, the, the neighborhood that in your mind you say, okay, no violent men will find me here, right? The, the neighborhood where um, it, it is a, a, a good, reputable neighborhood, a, a neighborhood that when you tell your friends you live there, they're still able, they still want to come to your house, right? We, we desire this name and this land and this security, but when, when God starts talking about, and it's going to last forever, and you will be, and, and, and this king will be to me a son, and I will be to him a father, and, and it feels just a little bit like cheesy, maybe? A little unrealistic, a little uh, bizarre. We get a little bit uncomfortable thinking about these claims of Christianities, and yet the good life that Jesus promises is anchored on exactly this, that the goodness of his kingdom will not come to an end, that the goodness and justice and mercy and peace will live forever. And I think we experience our, our temptation or our, our struggle as we sit there like Ellie and we go, God, I think I'm good. I'm okay with a little bit of this Christianity stuff. I'm okay with a little bit of, of what Jesus promises to do. But when you start talking about forever, it, it, it just doesn't seem right. And so we compartmentalize. We take the claims and the promises of Scripture and we say, Jesus, you have a place, right? You, you make life a little bit better. Coming to, to church on Easter morning is a, is a pleasant experience, but it's almost like our faith is... is well, it's like a new spin class, right? A new diet, a, a new uh, excellent novel that you just read. It's a good thing. It, it's a thing that, that puts you in this community, right? It's a thing that, that gives you a good name among your peers. It's a, it's a thing that makes you feel secure even when things around you are in chaos. But at the end of the day, it's a fad. If once the spin class gets boring, right, you can go to yoga, right? Once that novel is, is no longer new, you can find a new one. And so we try to take the claims of Jesus and we try to find a place where we, we're in them enough, right? Where we, we're, we're close enough that we feel good about our lives and yet we don't feel that weirdness of going around saying we believe in eternal life. But the claims of who Jesus would be, the claims of God about his kingdom is that they would last forever. And it is so staggeringly beautiful that it defies our attempts to, to squeeze it into a mold, to squeeze it into an aspect of our life. In fact, when the scriptures talk about salvation, think about some of the pictures that it, it gives you. It gives you a slave who becomes a free Right? It, it takes you, uh, it gives you a picture of an orphan who has no family and they are adopted by the most benevolent father. 
In the Gospels, Jesus will come up with these pictures of, of a man who, who finds a buried treasure, who finds the winning lottery ticket, and he goes and he sells everything that he has because this truth, this promise is so good that life can no longer be the same. No part of life can ever be the same. The, the aspect the taste of the good life that we have encountered, that we have found, is not nearly good enough. So when Jesus comes and surprises us with a resurrection, when Jesus comes and he surprises us and says, death shall be no more, the question that we're asked is, is will you answer him and say, I'm good, I got it under control. Or will you be willing to trust him that maybe his plan is a little bit better than yours? But I told you there was two bombshells here. And, and the second one is that God tells him that there, it's not just that their good life isn't good enough, but that their good king isn't good enough. Right? And, and the people have all settled in and rallied around this King David. There were some questions as we've gone through the narrative, but it is, it is clear and evident at multiple times that it is said that this king could do no wrong. Right? To, to understand the way that these people have settled in, you have to understand that David was like, uh, I don't know, like Michael Jordan and like Abraham Lincoln and like... like all of these people, these great heroes, right, and, and they're all in one. He's their identity. He's their security. He's their hope for the future, right? He's the, he is the vessel that they have become convinced will bring them to God's good glory. And it's hard to, to, to see why they wouldn't be settled in. I mean, who could ask for anything more than King David? And yet, when it came to build God's temple, God says, next. When it came for the most honored building to be built in all of Israel, God says, there's one who comes after. There's one who comes later. It's, 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 it's a it completely surprising, a complete twist to the people of Israel because they think, here is our Savior, and yet God says, no, David, that's not your job. I've got someone else planned for the job. Because here's the thing, as great as David was, he wasn't great enough. It's, we've, we've been on this twist, if you're visiting with us, we've been talking about longing for a king. We've been preaching and, and reading through First and Second Samuel for 11 months now. And all roads have led to David, have led to this moment when God's people were finally established, when God's king finally ruled on the throne. And yet at this moment of highest peak of glory, God says there's another. God says there is more. Now, most obviously, his promises of the son to come after, right? When God says that, the, that there is one who will come from you who will build my temple, right? There is one who comes after you whose sins I will discipline with the rods of men uh, that you might be turned, that you might stay with me. Most obviously, those point to King Solomon, who would be David's son and who would build a beautiful temple, 
But yet the gospel writers, the writers of the New Testament, all come to these promises that God made and, and they say, Solomon wasn't good enough either. Solomon's temple would be torn down and destroyed, as would Zerubbabel's temple be torn down and destroyed, and King Herod's temple would be destroyed and, and torn down. But yet there was one who bridged the distance between God and man, a, a, a man who would come and he says, you can tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And that was the words of Jesus as he goes to the cross. You see, David was confined by a lifespan, by death, like you and like me. So to fulfill the promises of forever that God has made, we need one who lives forever. One who is not chained and bound by death, but one who lives. There's someone greater is, is needed because David and Solomon were horrible sinners. The discipline that they needed was was robust. The, the consequences of their sin, the death and the hatred and the bitterness that comes from their sins. If we stay on 2 Samuel long enough, you will find utter despair. If there is to be a king who lives, uh, a kingdom who is, that is eternal, you need a king who does not just, who does not earn his stripes. And yet Jesus is the one who takes the iniquity, not his own, but of ours. And he bears the stripes of men that we might no longer be estranged. Right? Finally, we have in, in Jesus the one whom the resurrection tells us has defeated death. And that's why you, you'll see printed in your bulletin uh, this little, little snippet from the verse, first couple verses of, of Romans. And it's a book that, that was written after the time of Jesus. And it's a book that, that many scholars believe is written so that the people could understand what is most important. So that they could understand the biggest things. And right from the get-go, he says, uh, he's introducing himself. I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And he thought, you know, I better define that term a little bit. The gospel of God, what does that mean? Well, it it, it means that the, the, all the stuff that's been promised beforehand, right? In verse 3, concerning his son, who is a descendant from David, according to the flesh, that the promises made to David here in 2 Samuel would be realized. That was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. Why? By his resurrection from the dead. The whole New Testament is written with this claim in mind that Jesus is the son of David, that Jesus is the heir of David, that Jesus is the one who's not just a, a biological child of David, but he is the one who is anointed for the very special, specific tasks of forever, of peace, of forgiveness that we have laid out in 2 Samuel. And so like before, we see that, that it's hard to imagine a better king than David, and so they've settled in. But God says that's good King David is not enough. And so it comes to us, the reader. Is he really better? 
We're not sure if we should trust these these uh, superlative-sounding promises that God has made about this son of David. We all like King David. If you've read his story, you undoubtedly like him. You, like the Israelites, are, are drawn to this character with power and integrity. And so many of us are very comfortable reading Jesus as another David, as the kind of comeback or reincarnation of, of David. Right? It gives you the good feels to, to think that there is another one who listens to God and who acts. Right? It's, it's kind of like we felt last Sunday as, as Tiger Woods makes his comeback. Right? As Tiger Woods comes out in his, his red and black, as he hits the miracle shot on, on the 16th hole, as he sinks the last putt and pumps his fist, right? as he lets out a yell, and we feel the feels, and we're excited because we're like, ah, there's our glory. Ah, that's the way it's supposed to be. But the scriptures don't give us Jesus who's the same as David. It doesn't give us a, a Jesus who is a mere man. It doesn't give us a Jesus who, who is prone to the same distance and estrangement and death as David. It gives us a God who is fully, a man who is fully man and fully God. A man who existed before and a man who would live forever. A man who does not go to the grave to stay there, to, but, to, but to rise again. But in our uncomfort and in our skepticism of if God's promises are really true, can I really say that out loud? Right? We, we want to diminish the moment that we're in right now. We want to close down that, that, that kind of superlative language, that, that kind of language that at times feels cheesy. But a Jesus, a resurrection that, that didn't happen, or a resurrection, as some would claim, that is, is merely spiritual, a, a good feeling that comes over us as we watch this man, this good man, live and die, that good feeling isn't good enough. Because what we need in this moment and what we need in all the moments is a God who lives forever, a God, a king who reigns forever, a God who, who can push, not just push back against death and distance and estrangement, but a God who can obliterate them, who can remove them. And so we cannot settle for a merely human Jesus or a merely spiritual resurrection because God gave us Jesus in the fullness of time, man and God. The promises of God are so staggeringly different than we're comfortable with. But the promise he gives us is so sweet. It was this morning as I was thinking about, uh, you know, the, the giving opening illustration. And, and so I, I pulled up the pictures from that day a couple years ago of, of Ellie and I. And the, and the big surprise, the big reveal was was a day at, at Legoland with just me and, and her. And as I looked at those pictures of my little five-year-old girl, I imagined, what, what if I had listened to her? What if I hadn't continued to plead my case? What if I hadn't continued to, to woo her over? What if, if when she said, no, thanks, I'm, I'm good, I just said, well, 
I guess we'll stay here, right? If I had stopped when her, when she began to feel uncomfortable, if I had stopped at her skepticism, if I would have let her settle into the merely good vacation she was having, then she never would have experienced the thrill of that dinosaur roller coaster that she begged to go on over and over and over again. She never would have had the terrors and waking up at night from the 4D movie that scared her to death. Right? She never would have had the, the, the pure, unadulterated pride of getting her little driver's license, right, after going around the go-kart lane. She never would have uh, experienced the water park or the laser guns or the, the full-size Lego Darth Vader that she got a picture in front of. She never would have tasted that hot dogs and chips lunch, which to this day she promises is the best that she's ever had. She never would have tasted any of those things if I had let her. Instead, she would have traded in all of those sweet memories, all of those good life experiences, the good that sounded just a little bit too good to be true. She would have traded it all in for a day of carting around in a minivan getting stuck in traffic on the five. You know, the analogy, though, breaks down. Because you could imagine a, a day... Uh, on, the, on the town in San Diego that's just as good as Legoland. But the promise of God, the superlative greatness of the life he promised, the, the promise of a life that goes on forever, a kingdom that endures forever, a kingdom that is not bound by death and sin, but a kingdom that overcomes all of them is so much greater and so much better than the compromised and weak and pathetic excuse of religion that we so often claim. The gospel that God is offering us of a king who knows no end, of a kingdom that goes on forever, is ours to experience, is ours to believe in. But first, well, first we have to believe that this daddy-daughter date is good really good we first had to uh, we first have to come to a place where we trust the promises that this daddy makes to us we first have to uh, believe that his plan that his vision for a great day of vacation is so much better fundamentally comprehensively better than all of the things which I envision for my life because to follow after Jesus to trust in his vision of a world that goes on forever is not an easy one. It's one where we get in the back seat of the minivan and we don't always know where we're going. But if we look at 2 Samuel here, if we listen to the voices of Matthew and, and Paul, as we listen to the, the, the manifest witness of thousands of years of church history, we are told that this daddy lives up to the promises he makes. That this daddy will live up to the promises he makes. And we don't have to look any further than that Easter resurrection morning to believe him. So the question comes to us. Will we push him away? Will we call bluff on his promises, or will we dare to believe? 
Will we dare to trust? Will we dare to hope that the promises he has given us are true? Pray with me. God, as we gather this morning, and many of us feel pretty good about life. Some of us don't. All of us won't feel good about life at, at one moment or another. And yet, God, you give us these staggering promises, these promises that almost make us uncomfortable because they are so good. They sound almost, well, like a sales pitch. And yet, God, as the stories that you write in Scripture, the story that you are writing of Scripture is, is far better than anything we could ever believe, anything we could hope, anything that we could ever attain for ourselves. God, would you be the God who persists, the God who won't take no for an answer? Would you be the God who draws us into your life that we might see it and taste it and, in fact, know that it is good? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.